Good afternoon. It's good to see you here. Um, I talked about you this week, well, most of you. Um, we had a, an all-members meeting on a Tuesday night, and I talked about the 1145 service, and I just shared with those who don't know that people show up that, like, you exist. You're here. And uh, invited more people to come be a part. And so, um, as always, you 1145ers, bless my heart, thank you for coming to this later time slot. For those of you who maybe heard that on Tuesday night and decided to come give it a try, see, there's people here. They sing and we preach and do all the same stuff we do in the 10 o'clock service. And so thank you for coming to be a part of that. Um, I know it's Super Bowl Sunday, a lot going on. So I've, I've got about three hours here and then I'll be done preaching in time for the game. So um, we're going to be in um, Isaiah chapter 6 this morning. Isaiah 6, it's in your Old Testament. So if you go to the middle of your Bible you're going to probably land around Psalms, somewhere around Psalms. If you'll go to the right, uh, just a few books, you'll be in Isaiah. We'll start in chapter 6 in just a minute. So um, just quickly, we are on the second week of the All In Sermon Series. Um, last year, we spent um, overall six Sundays um, on All In. This year, we're, we're only spending four. So this is the second. And, uh, and just, just quickly, I want to just say a couple things on the front end. I'll probably say this every sermon for the series. Just get ready to hear it, okay? So, so what do we mean by all in? All in has very little to do with money, believe it or not, and very little to do with buildings. Um, when we say all in, what we're talking about is really what we just sang about. This, this life completely surrendered to God, um, following wherever he leads. This idea that Jesus has invited us and he said, if any of you are going to come after me, then deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and then Come after me, this beautiful all-in invitation that we're to love the Lord our God with, with how much? All, our heart, our mind, our soul, our strength, this all-in invitation from God. Now, now, when we do that, right, even imperfectly when we do that, right, what happens is that transcends into the rest of our life. It affects and impacts the way I love my wife as a husband, right? It impacts the way I Lead my boys as a dad. It impacts the way I interact with my friends. It impacts the way I do my work. And it also transcends and impacts uh, into how I steward my resources, my talents, my finances. And so, so here's what I want to say. When you hear the words all in, if you think in your mind, it just, it, you associate it with buildings or money, I love you, but you've missed it. Okay, you've missed it. So if that happens today and you're walking away thinking, man, all in, it's all about money and buildings, then, then I want you to do a couple things. One, just ask yourself maybe, where did I miss it? And then number two, let's chat. Let's talk, okay? Because the idea of buildings and money, those are like the necessary small little conversations we need to have in order to have the bigger conversation and keep the main thing the main thing. Jesus, falling hard after him, Inviting more people to come be a part of the amazing work he's doing in and through this church. Buildings and money, that's just the necessary conversation we have to have, okay, to get to where God is calling us to go. Now, this morning, we're going to talk about, continue the conversation about mission. So, really, this year, the theme for We're All In, we're going to be talking about mission every week. Last week was the mission of God. His resources, his mission. He has entrusted to me resources to be used and invested in his mission. This week, what we're going to talk about is how God's mission becomes my mission. How God's mission is actually my mission too. 
Isaiah chapter 6 is a perfect place for us to go this morning. We're going to start in verse 1. In verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook. And the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And this is Isaiah talking. He says, and I said, now listen to these words. Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people who, who have unclean lips. For my eyes have seen something. What? The king, the Lord of hosts. Now, this is an epic moment in Isaiah's life, right? This doesn't happen for Isaiah every day. This is not a common Sunday occurrence where he's like, yeah, it was Sunday, and the same thing happened. That happened last Sunday. I stepped into God's presence, and his robe, and the smoke, and this. Like, this is a big deal in Isaiah's life, right? Now, what we've got to understand, though, is that this is not a one-off moment for God. This is not a one-time event, a personal experience between him and Isaiah, the only time that God does what he's doing right here, okay? And so to maybe better understand that, um, we go forward in time from Isaiah 6, about 800 years, to the end of your Bible, the book of Revelation. It's the end of the first century. John, who was one of the disciples, now Apostle John, he's the only one still alive. Everybody else has been killed, martyred for following Jesus. So John is alive into the first century, about 800 years later, and God invites John into a similar experience in Revelation chapter 4. Listen to these words, and I want you to mark the similarities between what's going on in Isaiah's life and John's life. Listen, this is in Revelation 4. We'll put this on the screen. So he sees this, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Does that sound familiar? So John is having the same experience that Isaiah had. Now, really important for us to get that, this. This is not a one-time event. What's happening for Isaiah, what's happening for John, is God is not doing an event. He's unveiling something. He's showing them what is. Right? It's not like God, um, he, he cued the music and he called the angels over. Hey, guys, get over here, get over here, get over here. We're about to draw the curtains back. Now, I want you guys to sing, and here's your song. Here's what I want you to do. You're going to flap some wings. You can cover your eyes. And, like, did you hear what, how Revelation described it? Day and night, they never cease to do what? Sing what? Holy, holy, holy. Here's what that means for us. What the seraphim are doing in Isaiah 6, for Isaiah, 
they keep doing every day, every night, every day, every night. And what John is, is doing is he's being invited into that room where that song is still going on. Right? God didn't cue the angels. John was just invited into a glimpse of eternity where the angelic seraphim beings never cease to declare what? God's holiness. Now, we're going to see a couple more parallels here before we move on. First of all, these angelic creatures, these seraphim, in a lot of ways represent creation as a whole. And what we're seeing here is how creation itself is enthralled with God's holiness. So we talked about that a few weeks ago in the vision series about how when you or I go outside, that literally the heavens are declaring his glory. What does that mean? So like when you see this like amazing sunset and the light is right refracting through the water molecules in the air and it's just spitting out this orange, pink, purple, blue color, you're not sure what it's called, right? But you're like, whoa, that is magnificent. So what's happened is the heavens, the skies are proclaiming his handiwork and the heavens are declaring his glory, right? And it's happened in Isaiah 6, it's happened in Revelation Four, and it happens when you walk outside and you gaze up at a star-filled sky and you go, whoa, this place is big. This is a lot bigger than I thought, you're right? What's happening, you're, you're being invited into this worship experience with creation itself. Now, a second thing happens, which I want to focus on here today. So, how did Isaiah respond? Well, the, what he says is, woe is me. I am a, I am, what do you say? I am lost. Now, some of your translations will say I am undone or I am ruined. And so biblical translators struggle to find one word you can put in that sentence to convey all of that. I'm lost, I'm ruined, I'm undone. Okay, so what, what is happening for Isaiah? So think of it. Like, first of all, he's, he catches himself in this moment where the, the holiness of God is in front of him, and in this moment, he's seeing how big God is and how small he is, and he's coming undone, unraveled, ruined. He realizes in this moment, right, of, of humility that, that, that God would be just, God would be right to simply just strike me dead in this moment, and, and everything that he had built his life upon is coming undone. I thought I was a pretty moral guy. It's all coming undone and unraveled right there in the presence of God. I thought I was a pretty good leader. All coming undone and unraveled right there in the presence of God. I thought I was a pretty good husband, a pretty good dad, but not compared to that dad. Not compared to that husband. All of this is coming what? Undone, unraveled, and ruined. And, hear me, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Same thing happens in Revelation 24. You've got these, these elders who are there in the presence of what they're seeing. They're seeing the same thing that John saw and that Isaiah saw. And what do they do? They bow down and they take off the crowns. And they say what? Worthy are you to receive what? We just sang it. Glory and honor and power. What are the elders saying? Holy cow, get this crown off my head. Whoa, that was close. Right? I thought I was worthy enough to wear a crown, but now I'm in the presence of the real king. I can't get this thing off my head quick enough because only he's worthy to receive honor and glory and power. Now, 
Back to Isaiah 6. Creation's enthralled with the holiness of God. The human beings are humbled, right? Humbled. And what does Isaiah do? He, he repents of his sin. Woe is me. I'm ruined. I'm undone. I'm lost. I'm what? A man of unclean lips. I'm filthy. I'm dirty. I messed up. And all that, as I look out at all my fellow Israelites, the whole nation's messed up. We're all lost. We're all ruined. We're all, compared to that, we're a wreck. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live surrounded by people who have unclean lips. So Isaiah begins to shift towards this repentant heart. Now, look at verse 6 and 7 with me. Um, this is a pretty dramatic moment right here, okay? I'm going to do my best to, to, to point this out, but let's try to feel what's happening here. So in verse 6, one of the seraphim takes off, okay? So I was okay while the seraphim was up there by God, you know, flying above his throne. There's smoke and the trembling of the thresholds, but one of the seraphim flew to me, and he had in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Now, church, listen. There's nothing that I have found anywhere in the Bible that would communicate to us that this was a normal event. Right? That Isaiah would go, he would see the the seraphim take off and go, Oh, I know what he's doing because I remember what he did for Moses. And so pucker up because here he comes with something hot. Right? This is, this is, Isaiah, completely floored, completely bowed down, completely humbled, watching this seraphim. I almost read it like this. Um, Then one of the seraphim flew at me, (laughs) right, with a hot thing in his hand. And so so the the seraphim goes to the altar, takes with the tongs this hot coal, puts it in his hand, comes to Isaiah, and touches his lips and says what? Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. This is what we call atonement. Okay? This is also what happened at the cross for you. When you see the brutality, the horror of the cross, the suffering, the bloodiness, what Isaiah will go on to describe, um, one is from whom, of whom men would hide their faces from him. The suffering was so just brutal. Okay, all that's happening on the cross for us is God atoning for our sins. So no longer, right, do we have to wait on the seraphim to show up with the hot thing and touch us with it, right? By faith, we trust in what Jesus did on the cross, and our sins are atoned for. They're paid for. Isaiah was cleansed. Our sins are cleansed, right? Our hearts are cleansed. We are forgiven through Christ. Now, this is really important for us to, to, to look at together. So in this moment, really, you've got two things married together in Isaiah's heart. Repentance and surrender. Repentance and surrender. And it's so important we leave those married together, okay? Um, in, in my church journey as a Christian, early on, those two things were separated for me. That's the way it was taught to me. Repentance, become a Christian, and then later on down the road, if you make the team, if you make the cut, God will call you to the ministry, then you do what? Surrender to the ministry. Right? Those two concepts were separated from me. 
repentance and surrender. But here in Isaiah's experience, we're going to see they're very much married together in the same epic moment. Repentance and surrender. And I would note this as well. I don't know if you um, have ever like, studied the big movements of God in church history. Um, but when you do that, regardless of what continent it's happening on, whether it's here in the United States um, or it's happening in Europe or it's happening in uh, Asia or in Africa, um, here's what you can know. When God moves, we call it an outpouring of his Holy Spirit, okay? And we long for that. We want that. But two things accompany the movement of God's Spirit in revival. Guess what they are? Repentance and surrender. Every time, right? So we want to be a church praying for revival, right? Movement of God. Move through this place. Shake the thresholds. Make yourself known. But what do we need to be ready for? Repentance. And surrender. So when you ask God for revival, you're also asking God, lead us to what? Repentance and surrender. Two things married together. If you're taking notes, um, if you've grabbed one of the all-in books, you're taking notes. If you don't have one, there's some on the table on the way out. You you can snag one. Um, But here's the first principle. Encountering the presence of God leads to repentance and surrender. Happened for John. Happened for Isaiah. You're here today, and you're a Christian, it happened for you. You may not have had the big epic throne room experience with threshold shaking, but you encountered the presence of God, his bigness, your smallness, you repented, you surrendered, and he saved you. Your sins were atoned for. You were forgiven. Repentance and surrender. Now now God's going to do something that just further blows my mind in verse 8. Okay? So here's what happens next. God, sitting on his throne, is going to speak. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Now, pause before we read the rest of that verse. This would be a good moment for Isaiah to take a step back and go, Who's going to, man, I can't, who's going to respond to this? Right? He's excited. Which one of the seraphim are going to go? Like where's, maybe Moses is going to show up, he's going to go, or Elijah. And that's not what he does, is it? Look, look at what he does. Who, who will go for us? Who will I send? Then I said, that's Isaiah, here I am, send me. Bro, you should have kept your mouth shut. Now, I mean that somewhat sarcastically, right? Why? Because this was this turning point in Isaiah's life. From here on, everything's different. Not just for him, but for all of humanity. God will use this moment in this man's life to change the direction and the course of a whole nation. That's what the rest of the book of Isaiah is about. God using him to be a mouthpiece to change the course of a nation. And guess what? Ultimately pave the way for God's son to come to earth, which impacts us all. It's a big moment, isn't it? Big moment in God's kingdom, a big moment on earth, a big moment in your life and my life when God said, who's going to go? And Isaiah said, I'll go. Without hesitation, I'll go. Now, keep in mind, God didn't lay all this out ahead of time, did he? Hey, Isaiah, here's the deal. Like, before you say yes, before you sign, like, here's what we're going to do. Um, I'm going I'm to call you to travel around the nation, and just whatever I say, you want you to say it. Okay? And then um, people aren't going to always like you for it. They're going to mistreat you. They're going to misunderstand you. And and, oh, by the way, as you go, I'm going to tell you things to write down. I want you to write them down. And then at the end of your life, 
I'm going to compile all those writings into this thing we call a book in the Bible, and we're going to put it in the Old Testament. And he didn't say any of that, did he? What did he say? Who's going to go? And Isaiah did what? I'll go. Send me. No waiting period, no trial period, no probationary period, no, mm, Isaiah, hey, thank you. I'm glad you're excited. But if you'll have a seat, I'm going to grab one of these more experienced Christian leaders and use them. And then I'll come back to you, though. I'll come back to you, you know, a couple years from now. If you're still going to Sunday school and your attendance is good, then I may use you. No. Why? Because here's what you and I have to understand. God was not recruiting Isaiah because of Isaiah. He was not recruiting Isaiah because he was a who's who among God-fearers or, or this fantastic leader. God was calling Isaiah simply because God trusted the work he was doing in Isaiah's life. No probationary period to see how this is going to work out. God's like, hey, I'm going to use you today. Well, don't you want to see how things are going to work out? No, why? Because I'm the one doing this work in Isaiah's life. I don't need to see how he's going to work out because I'm the one doing the work. God trusted his own ability to work in and through Isaiah. And secondly, this is a principle we see all throughout the Bible. God always desires to do through you what he does to you. Old Testament, New Testament. Whatever work God does in your life, he also wants to do that through you. To bend it out to the people around you. Right? God loves you, but he also wants to what? share that love with others through you. God forgives you. He saves you. He reconciles you. He redeems you. And what happens when God does that in our lives? Don't we just automatically kind of stir up and well up and like, I just want to tell the people about this? Oh, man, I wish so-and-so were here. I want, to, I want them to be a part of this. What is that? That's God's stirring this desire that the work he does in you, he wants to also do through you. And this is what he's doing for Isaiah. There's a Romans chapter 8, there's a couple verses here that really kind of summarize this for us. And um, the Apostle Paul is going to lay out these big five words, these big theological words. Um, but I don't think in this moment he's doing this to try to show us how smart he is or explain what these words mean. He's got a, a different message here in this moment. So here's what he says in Romans 8. So, so let's be listening for the big words, okay? Verse 29 for those whom he, that's God, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed in the image of his son in order that he might, that's Jesus, be the firstborn among many brothers, that's us. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Five big words. And he doesn't take any time out here to explain them to us, which is fine. Read the rest of Romans and you'll get a great explanation. His point here is this. These aren't five different groups of people. Right? It's all one group. Those he foreknew, right? He also predestined. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he did what? He glorified. Now, see other references to get an explanation on how all that works. But the point is, here, here, I'll just sum it up in like simple terms for me. Those who have been saved have been called. If you are saved, you are called. The question in our minds shouldn't be, God, are you calling me to be a part of your mission? The question is, am I truly saved? Because I'm saved, I'm called. That's called me, compelling me, stirring me 
to be a part of whatever he's up to, to be on his mission. One last uh, passage of scripture I want to read this, this morning with you is 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. Again, the Apostle Paul explains this concept in a little bit more depth for those like me who are a little thick-headed. Need a little, bit, a little further explanation, please, Paul. Here's what Paul says in, in, in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11. He says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. That's just a fancy way of saying, hey, let me explain to you why we're so compelled to go talk, try to invite other people to become Christians, to persuade others. Here's what he says, verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. We're going to talk about that quite a bit this morning. Controls us. Some translations have the word compels us. So this is what Paul is saying. The, the love of God in your life, when God loves you, right, and you experience that love, it compels you to do something. Not just to sit there and absorb it in, but to, it stirs you to do something. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And, for, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for who? Themselves. So Paul says, everything changes when you become a Christian. right? When you realize that Christ died for you, then you realize, oh, you know what? We all need to just die to ourselves and live for him now. You see that correlation? No longer living for ourselves. That's what's happening for Isaiah. No longer living for ourselves. But for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, Paul says, hey, this, you're going to see the world differently as a Christian. For, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. So he's saying we don't simply look at each other and go, oh, there's another human being. There's a human being. There's a human being. He says once you become a Christian, you see other people differently. He says now it's kind of like Jesus. At one time we thought he was just a human being, and then he did the whole death and resurrection thing. And we're like, oh, wait a second. It's not just a man. It's like a God man, something right bigger going on here. He said in the same way, you're going to see that in one another. So even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we, re- we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So now when I see a, a brother or sister in Christ, I don't just see another human being. I see a new creation. I'm looking out at a room full of new creations. But not only is that different, look at what else changes for me when I become a Christian. Verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. How do you unpack that? What does that mean? So think about Isaiah. He's in God's presence. He realizes the, the, the bigness of God. He realizes his littleness. And what happens is a seraphim flies over, atones for his sin, and reconciles him to God. Right? In that moment of humility and repentance, he's like, I'm not worthy to be in God's presence, but God reconciles that. He says, Isaiah, you're welcome in my presence. Okay? So in the same way we've been reconciled, now we've been given something and trusted with something. What is it? The ministry of reconciliation. Again, if that's not enough explanation, Paul explains that is Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their, their sins or trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Listen to this next sentence. 
God making his appeal through us. God makes his appeal to the world through you, Christ follower. That's his MO. That's his primary missional strategy. Some would argue that's his only missional strategy is that you and I would be what Paul will call ambassadors for him. And what he means by that is that God is going to make his appeal to the world around you through you. We're all like little Isaiahs, aren't we? Little mouthpieces going and sharing with people what God has spoken to us. Now, let's, let's kind of wrap it up here. And I'm going to introduce you to somebody. So essentially what we're reading here is that those who have been saved by Jesus are called to live on mission for Jesus. If you're writing notes down, principle three, God called us, God calls us, listen Christ follower, he calls us to engage and invest in the same mission through which he saved us. Think about that. If God calls you to get involved in church, which I believe he is if you're a Christian, Say you serve or volunteer and you work with kids or you work on the worship team or the tech team or you help straighten chairs. What Paul is saying is you've got to remember once. There was, there was a group of people who sang and worked with kids and taught Awana and Sunday school and straightened chairs. And through them, God appealed to you and saved you. And now he's inviting you to be a part of that same mission. Do you think about that? And so essentially, this is what Paul is getting at here in 2 Corinthians. And I think what God is doing in Isaiah 6 and in that moment for Isaiah. He calls us to engage and invest in the same mission through which he has saved us. Now, let's, um, let's take a moment to get to know somebody special who's here with us. There you are. Jeff, would you come up to the stage? Would you join me in welcoming Jeff Rathbun to the stage? And you can clap. Yeah, I mean, just his beard alone is worthy of an applause. So even if you don't know who he is or why we're clapping, we applaud the beard. Jeff, come on up, buddy. Uh, Jeff is uh, is Jeff Rathbun. He's a member of our church. Um, He's uh, the husband of Holly Rathbun and the the dad to three, soon to be more than that, little girls. And uh, and, and he's also um, one of our missionaries. Uh, He and his family moved to the Philippines a year ago. Um, to engage in the work that we've been doing there. So we go in, we fly in once a year and do this work, we fly back out. But Jeff and his family are there to keep that work going year-round. And uh, just recently um, have come back to the States for furlough, which is Bible talk for rest, <laughs> kind of recouping and getting some uh, good Chick-fil-A in before they head back out. Um, and they'll have their fourth child there in the Philippines and carry that work on. And so um, next Sunday, I've heard conflicting times, 4 or 4.30 next Sunday afternoon, We'll clear it up. Um, We're going to do a meet and greet with Jeff and his family. You're going to get to hear more because today's probably going to stir some questions you're going to want to ask, okay? And so we'll do that next Sunday afternoon. Um, We'll talk about the trip coming up. But mainly I wanted you to hear from somebody who who I respect as, as, as a Christ follower who has said, here I am, God, send me before he knew where sent was going to go to, right? And, uh, and so, Jeff, thanks for taking time just to share with us. I'm going to ask you a couple questions if you don't mind. Um, first of all, I think about all the misconceptions in the church about missions and missionaries, and, um, and I think about all the obstacles and hindrances that come up, you know, and, and so some of the hindrances that I hear um, anyway 
um, are people who are saying, yeah, I'm saved by Jesus, I've been baptized, I joined the church, and, uh, and, and I'm just kind of sitting here waiting on God to maybe one day call me. If he calls, I'll go, but you know, for now, I'm just kind of in you know, keep this seat warm mode, and, uh, and he hasn't called me to be a missionary. Um, how, do you, how do you respond to that misconception about what missions is? Well, the first thing I normally tell people if they say, oh, well, I'm not, I'm not a missionary, I'm not called to do something like that, I said, well, no, you have a mission field. Yours is here, and it just, the difference between mine and yours is that yours gets cold in December, and mine just gets wet. Yeah. <laughs> like, it, that's, that's really it. Um, because like, like you've been saying all morning, you're called when you are saved. And so all Christians, all believers, all who are saved, they are therefore called to do ministry, to do mission work, to do evangelism. And your, everybody's primary place that they do that work is where they live. Um, you, you, your day in and day out places that you go, that's your mission field. So your home, your street, your community, your work, that's where you have the opportunity, the unique opportunity to do the, the ministry that God has given you, the ministry of reconciliation, because you have opportunities that I don't have and, and opportunities that Jason doesn't have to, to meet needs for people to, to carry out the ministry of reconciliation for people that you know. And that, that, that is the mission. That's the mission field. Hmm. Yeah, thank you. That's, that's really good. Um, sometimes I hear this, and not for anybody here, just maybe from one of the other services. I hear, um, well, you know, I'm, you know, I'm at this stage in life. I'm, I'm married, and i got all these kids, you know, and they're all needy, and they got all these sports, and I've got all this debt, and I've got this career. And, man, I just, you know, if I could just go back to being in college and single again, yeah, I'd be all in. I'd be living this mission, but now I got all this stuff here. It makes it really hard. So, man, I just, man, I just kind of envy you, Jeff, that you get to go live in the Philippines. But I wish I could. But you know, and it's funny because I think about you. And when Jeff and Holly said yes, we'll go, um, had no idea really what they were getting into, right? But they only had two kids. Since since they said yes, third, and about to have a fourth. So it's not like you don't have a family and right and wife and all these other things going on. So how do you respond to that misconception? Aside from the obvious thing that people who are single or just just couples that don't have any kids, they have a lot more flexibility with opportunities to do missions or other, other types of ministry. Aside from that obvious thing, Having a family is challenging, of course, because you have to worry about a bunch of other little people. Um, but it's not a hindrance to missions or ministry unless you kind of make it one. Um, because really all it is is just considering how to do that with your kids, um, how, to, how to bring your family along uh, for those ministry events and those ministry opportunities. And so... <clears throat> I think, I mean, because we have a, um, we have some friends who actually, they have just moved to our city in the Philippines, and they, they are starting uh, their mission work there, and they actually have five kids, three of which have um, disabilities and handicaps, and they were doctors and midwives, and they had really nice careers here in the States, and they recognized the same thing. It's like, no, I'm 
saved, and so therefore I'm called, and so this is where God is placing us. So family and kids is not a hindrance unless you kind of leave it to be one. Um, but then on top of that, there are really two, I think, awesome things that happen when, as a family, you live on mission or all in or however you want to phrase it. And I think the first, the first thing is that as a family, you get to be an example, highly imperfect, highly messy example. Very of, messy, right? Very messy. There's a lot of applesauce of how the Christian life plays out day to day within a family. So not only are you showing grace and receiving grace from your spouse, but you're doing the same thing with your kids as you're teaching them, look, this is sin. This is the responsibility that you have towards God to repent of that sin and, and to, to do these things. And so as an example to young families or people who are about to become families or people who might be struggling in their family or whatever their situation might be, you are an example of this is what the Christian life is. This is how it works. And it's it's nitty-gritty, and it, it is messy, and that's the, that's the beauty of it um, as an example. But then I think for us, more importantly, it's that since we have thought about, okay, we can't just drop our kids somewhere while we're going off to an island to do work or going off to a village, so... How are we taking them with us? What are they going to be doing? I think when we do those things and when we're doing just out and about stuff with our family, we have opportunities. We, we see opportunities to do evangelism, to do um, other things and meet needs for people as we see it arise. And as we do that, our kids are seeing us take those opportunities and recognize those moments when we can experience and express the ministry of reconciliation and in that they see that it's a habit that this is just normal this is the natural part of the christian life this is what you should be doing as a christian you don't have to wait till sunday you don't have to wait till wednesday you don't have to wait till there's uh, a special outreach event at your church you can do this day in and day out and then as your kids grow up that's just that's just normal that's just life for them and so i think that that's those are two, like being an example and then um, just the normalizing of the Christian life as one of daily service and evangelism. I think those are two big blessings that come from being a family, however big it is. Hmm. So what I hear you saying is that living your life missionally, if I could use that phrase, is messy. Yeah. So you and Holly don't have it all together? Dude, I don't think we, I don't think we, She's saying, no, we don't. <laughs> okay, right? So it's not about having everything together and then God uses you. It's not about waiting until the kids grow up and get out of the home, then God uses you. It's like, God wants to use me right now, and I love the word you use, like normalize it, right? Or like your kids grow oh, this is what normal Christ following looks like. Um, I think I love that um, yeah. for sure. Um, well, thanks for, you know, thanks for those two answers. I mean, I think, you know, and, and they're good answers, by the way, right? Good answers. Um, that's what you'd expect out of somebody who's been trained, been to seminary, you read some books. Um, I joked earlier, he was born with the, the missionary birthmark, you know, so expect big answers from, no, but no, just on a real, I mean, you're just a man, right? You're just a, uh, yep, a guy who's a dad and a husband, and, um, and so on a personal level, why you do it? I've been there, by the way. It's not easy. 
No. And I was just there for like a couple of days. How do you, why do you do it? Um, it's, it's going to sound corny and kind of like a Sunday school answer, but it, it's Jesus. Um, and, I mean, you, you think about it, and it does kind of sound like, well, why do you do it? Well, Jesus. But it's the truth because, like, like Isaiah, um, but to a far less dramatic degree, I, I, I mean, I've experienced that, that moment where, you, where, you've, where I've encountered the holiness of God, and I've recognized, man, I'm doomed. I'm a sinner that's condemned before this holy God, and yet he reaches out and he calls me to his salvation. And then in that moment, I want nothing more to do than serve him, to say, yeah, I'll go. I don't know where it is. I don't know what I'm going to be doing, but I'll do it because he is, I mean, he's worth it. And so, like, that, that Jesus is it, full stop, all the way. And so, like, that's why you should be doing any sort of ministry work, whether it's here or whether it's in the Philippines. And, like, for us, I mean, we like you. We, we, <laughs> Thanks, like, we love the church. No problem. We love the church, but y'all are not why we're in the Philippines. Um, we're not in the Philippines because of the Philippines. We're there because of Filipinos that need Christ, mm-hmm. that, that have not experienced salvation, that haven't met and encountered the holiness of God and recognize that they are undone as well. And so that, that's why we're doing what we're doing. Hmm. I love that. You know, when you get to the Philippines, you realize, oh, there are people here. Yeah. Right? And so guess what? When you show up at work tomorrow, there are going to be people there. Right? When you go home this afternoon, if you have a family, there are going to be people there. And that's the point, right? Yeah. So, uh, man, that's good, good stuff. Thanks for taking a moment just to kind of share your heart on this topic. And, um, you know, and next Sunday, he's going to be here with the family. Like I said, in the afternoon, we'll get to hear more. But I um, just wanted Jeff to come just share a little bit about living missionally. So, Jeff, thank you for that. Thank you for your time. And I'm so proud of your beard, man. Makes <laughs> me jealous. Yeah. So, so here's how we're going to just gonna wrap up today. We're going to uh, get a chance to listen to a brief video testimony from one of our families. And, uh, and then the worship team's going to come up and lead us in a song. Okay? And while they're doing that, while the band's up here singing, as always, um, our prayer partners are going to be around the room, the front, the back. Our prayer and counseling rooms are open. Um, if you're here today and, and you have not come to that place where you've trusted in Jesus as your Savior, um, you either don't know what to do or you don't know how to do it, or I mean, come grab one of our prayer partners. I know it's kind of nerve-wracking, uh, but, but listen, don't leave here today without talking to somebody about how to become a Christian. They would love to pray with you. Anything else going on in your life, they'd be honored as well to pray for you for that. And uh, so let me pray. We'll watch a video, and then we'll sing. God, thank you. God, thank you for this very challenging reminder from Isaiah um, that you don't call people who have it together, uh, people who are qualified. You don't call um, the best of the best to be your servants and your missionaries. God, you call ordinary, uh, messed up, wrecked up people like us uh, to be your mouthpiece, to be um, the conduit, to uh, God, to be ambassadors, and God, you desire to make an appeal to the world through us. That blows us away, God. God, that's so humbling. And once again, it just further magnifies your goodness and your love for us. So, God, thank you for the reminder through Isaiah this morning. God, help us to walk out of here today, ready to live the mission. In Christ's name.